Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Upwards podcast. This is a new thing for us. This is our first special episode. Hopefully, we'll bring you many more. Uh, This is a follow-up to an event we had at Upper House on February 18th, uh, an event based on a book, a new book from InterVarsity Press by Chandra Crane called Mixed Blessing, Embracing the Fullness of Your Multicultural Identity. That event uh, went very well, and it's on YouTube if you want to watch it. Uh, on our YouTube channel. And right now, what we want to give you is a follow-up with the panelists on a bunch of the questions they couldn't get to during the event. And so with me here to introduce this uh, follow-up conversation is Rebecca Cooks, our hospitality and events coordinator and the program curator and host for the Mixed Blessing event. Hi, Becca. Hello. Good to be with you all. So just real quick here, tell us about the group that we're going to hear just in a moment. Absolutely. So it's a group of five people, including myself. Um, The first is Chandra Crane, who is the author of the book off of which we based the entire event. Um, So I got the opportunity to interview her about writing her book and really her story that led into the book. And then after that interview, I got to invite um, three other community members as uh, to join Chandra on a community panel. So um, one is Aidan Deteen, and he is actually an intern with Upper House, um, and he is a sophomore at UW-Madison, and just a bright and very mature, profound student. Uh, Nicole Kyle, she works at a local church here in Madison called High Point, um, and has been one of my closest confidants in talking about being uh, multi-ethnic, so not just being a minority, but being a section of a minority, or as, what, as Chandra calls us, minorities of minorities. <laughs> and then um, finally is Peter Shackelford, who is actually married to my office mate. Um, and he made the comment to me once um, when I was hanging out with them in the summer. He's like, hey, Becca, do you realize that with your skin color and my skin color, like we can wear almost any shade of clothing and it looks good on us? <laughs> and that was such a small comment, but I, it spoke so much. I was like, oh, my gosh. Because you understand what it's like to be multi-ethnic and what that, like, the good, great things about it that we get to celebrate, like wearing all these fun clothes. And um, then I'm assuming you know all the hard things about it. So then we got to jump into conversations that way. So all dear friends um, who have started the journey of processing their ethnicity, um, and I think they've done it very graciously. Um, so it was, it was a gift to listen to them and then to be able to share that. I was very thankful for it. Yeah, not just gracefully, but also with a lot of energy and joy and comedy. Even. Yeah, even. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, they were great. Yeah, so b- both the event, you really get that energy. And uh, in this in this conversation, you'll get that as well. Mm-hmm. So last question for you, Becca. Now a few weeks removed from the original event and from talking to Chandra uh, originally about the book, do you have a takeaway or an insight that stuck with you about reading this book or about having these conversations? Yes. I was really struck a couple, actually it was just a day before we did the event. I had several conversations with people who knew the event was coming up and asking me how I was feeling, and they inevitably would give me their hopes or expectations for the events or their opinions on the conversation of race, which typically I'm very glad to hear. Um, and I was struck by how different 
the thoughts were and really how separate or spread on the spectrum of opinions on race these comments were. And I was really feeling this tension of, oh my gosh, you're really far to one side and this person is really far to the other side and I'm somewhere in the middle and how on earth do we hold that tension? I can't please everybody. That's not even my job. But how do we um, appease the most people? Are we even trying to appease people, right? And I think that's a very common question in general that makes people find themselves asking of, oh, I'm in the middle and I'm not like this group over here or that group over here. Um, and so I can't please everybody. And in trying to come to grips with the fact that you don't actually need to please everybody. You'll hear, um, I believe, Peter and Nicole talk about um, how our job is to grow into who God has made us to be and who God has defined us to be, which is different from who we are tempted to say we are apart from him or who anybody else says we are apart from him. And, and so that from that confidence or knowing just where we are placed and who we are meant to be, um, there are lots of beautiful applications that flow from that that I think can apply past the race conversation. So understanding that we um, can choose what parts of ourselves we are living out at different times, um, that we can approach conversations with grace and without trying to take offense, um, where we can give effort to see the beautiful things and the hard things in people that are just different from us and not necessarily needing to choose one side or one camp, but acknowledging, okay, you are human too. There are actually probably some good things about you. So whether it's across racial lines, political lines, what have you, there is uh, something very beautiful in being able to acknowledge this is where I'm at, but I also see that you are someone made in the image of God, someone worthy of love and who has probably processed and has reasons for doing what you're doing or thinking what you're doing. How do I learn about that more? How do I acknowledge the nuance of, of all of who you are? Um, so I was really appreciating that experience being underlined. Yeah, thanks, Becca. And it, it just strikes me that a conversation that might on the surface seem like it is only for certain people mm-hmm. who are experienced um, multi-ethnicity or are of uh, mixed backgrounds actually has applications for all of us. Absolutely. If, if we think about it the right way. Mm-hmm. So we're honored to have hosted this event and this conversation you're about to hear. Uh, make sure to follow us uh, or subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Stitcher or whatever your uh, podcast uh, app is. And if you have any comments or suggestions, uh, you can email us at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org. And so with that, here is an Upwards conversation about the book Mixed Blessing. Uh, We're grateful that you decided to check out this follow-up conversation from a previous event in which I interviewed author Chandra Crane on her book called Mixed Blessing, Embracing the Fullness of Your Multi-Ethnic Identity. After which, we had a panel of multi-ethnic community members join the conversation, and everyone from that event is back to continue that conversation and to answer your questions about the topic of multi-ethnicity. So if you would like to watch our first conversation, which essentially laid the groundwork for our talk today, you can find the event recording at Upper House's YouTube channel. So let's get started. Uh, We have five voices coming to you today, including myself. And I would like the four of you to introduce yourselves. Um, so would you please tell us, one, your name, 
Two, your ethnic and cultural background. And then three, something that you appreciated taking away from our conversation that happened about a week and a half ago. So I will start with Aiden and then we'll go to Nicole, Chandra, and then Peter. So Aiden, go ahead. Sweet. Uh, yeah, my name is Aiden Bettine and my ethnic background is on my mother's side, I'm Filipino. On my father's side, I am Caucasian. Ooh, something I appreciated taking away from the first conversation. And I think there's just the camaraderie of the group that we have. Like right away, we all just kind of clicked. It didn't really take a ton of time for us to, you know, get super acquainted with each other. Um, and I think part of that was because of the topic that we were talking about. But I think there's just a sense of family in, in this group. And, and so I really, really appreciated that. That's wonderful. Thank you. I agree. I felt that as well. And I heard comments from guests who watched that they also appreciated the camaraderie. My name is Nicole Kyle, and I am Mexican-American. Mexican on my dad's side, American on my mom's side. I was going to say the exact same thing, Aiden, the camaraderie. I really appreciated that. I think especially growing up in a place where there weren't very many, not just that there were few minorities in the area where I grew up, but especially there were very few mixed minorities. And mm -hmm. um, it's just another subset. It is really a blessing to be around people who can just understand and relate in that regard. And so I appreciated that. Absolutely. Chandra in uh, her book or your book, sorry, you're here, um, calls us minorities of minorities, which is, I think, just very appropriate. It makes a lot of sense. Great. Thank you. Chandra, would you like to go next? Yeah. So my name is Chandra Crane. Um, I am multi-ethnic Thai and white American. My dad, uh, my birth father was a Thai national and my birth mom is um, white American of Scotch-Irish heritage, from what I understand. And then also I'm multicultural white and black. My adopted dad um, was African-American. Even though I have that diverse background, something I appreciated from the first conversation is just that reminder of how diverse we are. Um, that reminder of how unique all of our stories are. That reminder of how important it is to hear each other's stories. Um, otherwise, we just can't picture the kingdom unless we've got all these different stories. So that was, it was just sweet, sweet hearing from everyone and being reminded that we're not alone. Yeah, which, you know, ties into what has already been said about the, the community and the camaraderie of it all. Uh, yeah, my name's uh, Peter Shackleford. My uh, multi-ethnicity uh, on my father's side is Caucasian. He's uh, of Dutch and uh, English ancestry. And uh, on my mother's side, she is uh, Panamanian from, from the country of Panama. <laughs> <laughs> I, guess, uh, I guess one thing I, I appreciated from uh, the, uh, the discussion was also the camaraderie, but just, uh, just the diversity uh, of everyone on the panel as well. I don't know. It could just be pretty easy to, to just uh, invite other, other panelists that were of like uh, ethnicities that are more well-known or, or something like that. But, and not that that was a factor either. It was, it was just a pleasant surprise. That's all. I agree. It's beautiful. Yes. And then I am rounding out our conversation. I'm representing um, African-American and white ethnicity. My dad is black and my mom is white. Um, and then I'll be moderating us for today. So wonderful. Thank you for introducing yourselves. I would like to start us off with the question, how have you chosen which parts of your ethnic identity to celebrate or to highlight? So this is coming from identity. 
we don't always live out the the full components of our ethnicities, what do you find yourself living into? And when does that come about? So I, I'd like to hear everyone answer on that first one. So I'll let uh, whoever feels ready go first. I'll throw out there just how much I appreciate this mixed journey of that's okay to mm. lean into more of a majority culture side, to lean into a more of a minority culture side for mixed folks who are within a certain diaspora, like Asian, but Chinese and Japanese or different native tribes, things like that. It just feels really freeing to even ask that question. Cause I think in the past that question hasn't been allowed. It's not been appropriate. So for me, I am pushing into the part of me that is making discoveries. Is that a cheat? That's a total cheaty answer, right? Like I'm thinking about my ethnicity as discovery, but I really am just as I'm learning more about my Thai heritage, which I don't know very much about, and even trying to disciple myself out of whiteness and figure out more about the white part of my makeup and, you know, figure out some of my ancestors from the white side. I just love being able to be fluid like that. Yeah, I think... I think that it is, it, it isn't very conscious on my part. So I think the word fluid <clears throat> is a really appropriate one for how I experience this, Chandra, because I mean, there are different times where I, I'll maybe realize it as it is happening, but especially to given that, so for, for me, we grew up, my family grew up in the U.S., but my dad's family is all still in Mexico. So I wasn't even in growing up, I wasn't surrounded daily with multiple people from this culture or living in this culture. And it, we weren't able to visit our family in Mexico as frequently as we were able to visit our other family. And so I think that definitely played a part. One way that I, that I definitely see this playing out is that I think that I often find that I identify with the minority story a lot. So when I'm hearing other people tell their story, or if I'm hearing about oppression or if I'm hearing about celebrating a culture that is different, um, what, like whatever part of it it is, I definitely find myself relating to that part. And I mean, that was something that like all of this ties together, right? So like that was something that for a long time, I felt like a fraud because mm -hmm. I look just fully white. And because I so easily fit into majority culture that I was like, man, am I even allowed to identify with the minority story? But it, that is for sure a huge part of how I experience my ethnic identity. Yeah. I want to come back to uh, that term that you used, Nicole, of fraud, um, or just the feeling of being an imposter. So we'll circle back to that after we get to hear from um, Aiden and Peter. So do either of you guys have a thought? Um, as to how you choose to live out different parts of you. It's interesting because I, I feel like my answer does tie into actually both what Nicole and Chandra says. I can relate with Chandra because I'm, I'm similarly in a season of discovery as well, um, but not more the discovery of my Caucasian background, but more my Filipino background, just uh, because my story with being uh, multi-ethnic is uh, for a long time, I actually refuse to explore the part of me that is Filipino because um, when I did start to explore those things around middle school, there, there was a lot of pushback from a lot of the peers of mine that were part of the majority culture in the small town that I grew up in. And, and in a lot of ways, they even saw that as a very unattractive quality to be multi-ethnic because they didn't really understand and were immature about it. And so, you know, my response to that was, well, 
I don't feel accepted by identifying this way. Maybe I just won't identify. And so for the longest time, I kind of shut out that part of me that was like wanting to embrace my multi-ethnicity and embrace the fact that I am unique. And so, and, and there's some things that I do regret in that. Um, you know, I think part of it was, part of it did end up coming out towards uh, my grandparents that were from the Philippines and not wanting to spend as much time with them um, or not being as present with them um, or even try to want to even like eat their food for the longest time. And so it was, it was, it was interesting to like shut that out for a while, but you know, I think part of, you know, once I started going to college and even just with this event that happened, I think there's been a huge reawakening and wow, I have a lot of parts of me that I don't really know about and I want to explore. I think in that I'm able to celebrate the parts that I haven't for 19 years of my life. And so I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that, but you know, it's, it's not to say I'm not going to touch more on all parts of uh, who I am, but specifically in this season of life, I'm going to explore more about who I am as Filipino American and who I am and who my family is and what the whole culture is about that I've been missing out on. So yeah, that's my long winded answer. Oh, that's great. And I, I'm hearing something from you, Aiden, that I've heard from other people who are multi-ethnic where they don't necessarily think of, oh, I'm living out this part of me versus this part of me. They just are living as they know how to live until they come to an external factor that points out either points it out well or not in a good way, <laughs> um, but points out, oh, hey, you're different or you're something that I haven't experienced before. And that seems to be the first point of realization where you're like, oh, OK, so what I am is not something that you're used to or not even common, at least in our context. And uh, so there are places where I'm fitting in and I can live out as I feel like I can live out who I am without questioning it. And then there are other settings where I'm kind of like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm aware that I'm different. That can still be okay, but I'm more aware. So that seems to be a common story. The intentionality of, okay, now that I'm aware, there's almost a choice that you're making to, I, okay, I am going to learn about this now. Probably the, uh, we, I think we kind of touched on this a little bit with, uh, with food during the last discussion. And so that's, that's a, that's a pretty big way that, that I've chosen to, uh, kind of discover my minority ethnicity but another way is through uh becoming a soccer fan wasn't always a soccer fan i've probably been a soccer fan for maybe like the last i don't know somewhere in the 10 to 15 year range i didn't really know anything about it never played really i mean i played a little bit when i was when i was a kid but but not but not much as soon as my my big growth spurt hit and I was the tallest kid in every grade, I got swept up into basketball. Peter Towers over everyone in the room, essentially. <laughs> but my whole my whole mother's family, they're you know, every time, you know, they're, they're, half of them are Barcelona fans and the other half are Real Madrid fans. And every time they those two teams face off, you know, there's there's all this, you know, trash talking and everything. And in college, I found myself uh, starting to get to know a lot of people who who followed soccer and so i was like oh this is this is a way for me to connect and then eventually when i went to edgewood uh it was also a bigger point of connection i actually found myself following the english teams more so than like the spanish league teams <laughs> so it's it's interesting how that's how that's developed for me um circling back to this concept of being an imposter or realizing okay i'm not 
exactly the same as these people around me, whether it's majority culture or minority culture. Maybe, Nicole, you could start us on this conversation. Maybe speak a little bit more about feeling like a fraud and how you have thought through that or tried to combat that concept. I think for me, it started probably, well, it at least started consciously when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it was present before then, just in a much more innocent way, but just you know, going to visit family in Mexico and not being able to speak the language as well as I wanted to, or is like, but, but at that point, I didn't feel bad about myself. I remember one trip, my cousin and I were trying to like teach each other all these words in Spanish and English. And, and when you're a kid, I mean, you can find so many ways to connect other than language. So it was, I still have lots of great memories from that. But I think once I got to high school and started to, experienced some more discriminatory comments and remarks. But the thing for me is that I always felt like this spy because Mm. I don't present as Mexican or as non-white. And so I would hear these comments being made. um, And these were specifically about Mexican American or not Mexican Americans, just Mexicans in general, sometimes about immigrants, sometimes not. But I would hear these comments made right in front of me. Mm. And I would think, what like don't I'm Mexican like don't you know this about me I would feel so like this feels weird and sometimes I would even say something like I'm standing right here Mm -hmm. and they would say things like oh well not you Nicole like we like you and that I think was when I first started to feel this sense of being a fraud or -hmm. being an imposter or however you want to describe it because I had such competing emotions internally like on the one hand I was so angry at what was being said and then on the other hand I was so angry that yeah you like me because you got you took the time to get to know me like why are you refusing to do this with other people and then thirdly I would feel like so I'm not even Mexican enough for you to hate me and that was the piece that I think started to get you know, we just have these records that kind of play over and over again in our heart and our head. That that was the one that I started to hear more and more that like, I'm, I'm not even Mexican enough to be discriminated against by these people who are doing this terrible thing. And like, why would I want that? You know, like, I don't want to experience those comments. But it just reminded me that I don't identify with you in making them nor do I identify apparently with the people you are looking down on. And so I, I just felt like, I didn't have a place. And that continued for sure through high school. There were more things like that that would happen, even within groups of people who I thought were my close friends. Some of the memories that I still feel most ashamed of because they were my close friends. Like they were the people I spent time with. And I felt, I wish I would have responded differently. I wish I would have said things to them. I wish I would have not let them speak to me the way that I did. But I mean, also you're just trying to fit in and trying to not make waves. And so, yeah, for sure, it started on a very conscious level in high school. I think in college, it was there as well. But I often relate my story of my ethnic journey to that of Moses, where like he is ethnically a Hebrew who is adopted by the Egyptians, so lives in this majority culture. And his first response when he's seeing the injustice is he gets so angry that he kills somebody. And then his second response is, well, I'm just going to run away and not deal with it. And then he becomes the bridge builder. And I feel like college 
was in some ways me running away because I had been so angry for so long and felt like nothing was changing. And so, I mean, you, you still feel like a fraud in the midst of that too, because you're like, man, I'm just running away from these things. And then it wasn't until I, um, somebody who worked on staff with the campus ministry that I was a part of was like, Hey, Nicole, how are you doing on your ethnic identity journey? And I was like, what the heck is that? What in the world are you talking about? And I think at that point, it started the process of me really like embracing who I was made to be. And I talked about this some in our panel, but embracing, okay, well, it wasn't a mistake that I was made this way. So then what does this mean? How am I going to do it? How am I going to steward what God has so intentionally placed in me, both in my experiences and what I look like? So yeah, that was a part of that process. I'm thinking about my own experience. If I go to a space that is primarily African-Americans, um, I'll usually get the comment, Oh, girl, you too bougie to be here. And so they're commenting on how light my skin is or how I speak. And I don't have the interdental fricative, even though I can choose to use that um, where I'm not enunciating D's and T's um, and how I, I did graduate from college. I have my own car. My job paid me to go to this conference. Wow, you booty. And just like these comments of you don't quite fit here. You're like a little too extra to fit this space. But then I'll go to some white settings where they're really trying to engage race and they want to ask me questions about it or they they like that, okay, I'm on their team. They can, uh, or I can be like that bridge to the multi-ethnic side of the world. And I've had people tell me like, okay, well, we're looking to bring in uh, more diversity and let's find someone who's African-American. You're not fully African-American. So you're, you're not actually giving us that experience. So just giving me essentially saying like, you're not enough of what we're looking for to really be useful for that area of life. I'm like, what? So I've, um, I've found it useful to set the expectation for people, which also sets the expectation for me as I'm engaging with them about race or in settings where race is a factor. Um, and it, so it reminds them and it reminds me. So if I'm going into a conversation um, about race, I have to say, now I am giving you the multi-ethnic experience. I'm not giving you the black experience. I'm not giving you the white experience. I'm giving you the mixed experience. And for that matter, I'm giving you my mixed experience, which is going to be different than another yes. person. That's a wonderful reminder, even for me <laughs> to be like, it's actually okay that I am not fully what you are expecting there or what you're fully expecting there. I am staking my claim in the middle and that is so fine. And I'm reminding myself that that is so fine. So that's been very helpful as I've been trying to not feel like a, an imposter, like I don't belong someplace. I'm like, well, I'm not you, but that doesn't mean I don't belong because I am part of you, but I'm going to remind you that I am part and that's going to affect how I'm coming into things. So Chandra, you've been nodding your head a lot. Please go for it. I was laughing at like those of us who are like really into it, like externally and those who are clearly really into it internally. That's a whole discussion for another time. (laughs) I love that you mentioned that Becca, because I've had not the opposite experience, but a similar experience in a different direction of like, when you're in progressive, if you will, circles and you're thinking, okay, they really care about diversity and they really, and then you're like, wait, where are all the people of color at? And you take a look around, you're like, oh, that's me. Yeah, I'm the diversity. Got it. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And so that, that, that other side of like, okay, I'm a less threatening diversity. Mm-hmm. So you've asked me to come in, but then you get real irritated when I start agitating for change because I'm not just white. 
and then you don't know what to do with me because maybe I'm actually more threatening than I seemed to be mm -hmm. um, appearance wise. And like Nicole was saying, I present as white. I presented as mostly Asian when I was younger. And it wasn't until high school that my, I still have my epicanthal folds, but um, I started widening. Um, I got freckles out of nowhere. My hair got curly, which is kind of fun actually, because then I could identify more with my adopted dad who is black. People would even say, oh yeah, I, I can see it. You have his smile right? You have his mouth, which would make me laugh. But then that fits that weird imposter syndrome of me needing to explain, oh, well, you know, he's, he's my stepdad. He's my adopted dad, just because I don't, I don't want to be Rachel Doljal, right? And, and the more I read about her and the more I listen to interviews with her, which I did quite a bit of research for the book, um, as well as I know someone who knows her and knew her in her time when she was being formed in this black church. I think she just got tired of telling the nuance of her story. I think she just got real weary of having to always explain that her identity with Black culture and her love for Black culture and her passion for justice for Black people mm -hmm. was not ethnic, but it was cultural. And she mm -hmm. just kind of let people make assumptions and it just got easier. And so I think that is a hugely important part of the mixed experience is being able to articulate all the complications and all the ways in which we don't fit stereotypes. And I love that you brought up Moses, Nicole, because the third part, right, of his cultural yeah. identity is being a Midianite. He married a Midianite woman. He spent, what, 30 years in the desert with the Midianites? Like, he would have had thoroughly Midianite mannerisms. Uh, you know, who knows if they had their dental fricatives or not. I, lo I love that you, you brought that up. The geek in me is really delighted that you brought that up because I love linguistics. But he would have had that perspective. And I wonder how many times coming back into the Hebrew nation and supposedly being this redeemer and the savior for them, you know, as he was echoing and, and showing the way to Jesus in the future, how many times it wasn't just his upbringing in Egyptian circles, but how many times it was his Midianite formative years that made him feel that sense of imposter syndrome, which I think is sweet, right? I think it's really sweet that that was included in the Bible, that Moses had a very complicated story. I think that's a powerful word for all of us to be encouraged who are mixed and for uh, white folks, majority culture folks, um, monoethnic minority culture folks to pause for all of us to pause and say, how are we trying to reduce things down to a single story? Because I think that's important. Yeah. So we all, the five of us have, seem to have taken the initiative to learn more about our background. And so that has been something that's important to us. Peter and Aiden are saying that that is something that people can choose to do. So hopping back to Peter and then Nicole and Chandra, if you want to hop in on this, you can. Uh, what prompted you to choose? Yes, this is what I do want to explore. If if it is a choice for people, why is it so important for you or so important for this group that you understand what your ethnicity is? Man, that's a, that's a long answer. How long do we have? Without going into too much detail, my parents made a, a difficult choice when I was a, when I was a kid during my upbringing to uh, basically not have any connection uh, with me to my uh, family in Panama. That sounds horrible, just laying it out there like that. But there, there's, there was a lot more that went into that choice, and it was a very, a very difficult decision for them to make. Fast forwarding to an adult, it didn't register as something that like I was missing into my twenties. Probably not until my late twenties did did I start to like, kind of like realize like, okay, there's something missing from my my identity. I realized it was it was that. And so, so I took, I took the initiative to, to reconnect. Uh, I started going back to visiting uh, my family down there, trying to get plugged in where I can uh, in the uh, Latino community here in Madison, just trying to pick up what I can 
learn what I can about that part of my of my ethnicity. I've um, found myself. Well, and I just like history. I like context. And so I appreciate digging into that side of me. Um, But I enjoy how much more I am able to celebrate who I am by looking back into my ethnicity and by understanding, oh my goodness, look at the resilience and the joy and maybe even the musical rhythm that comes from my black side. That's my ancestry. Some of that has to be in me in some capacity. And how do I get to live that out? And how do I get to celebrate that within myself? I would say I've chosen to dig into that more in part because I get to appreciate who God has made me to be. And I think in a more well-rounded scope. Yeah, I, I don't know that that's something that is required for every person to understand of themselves. And it, it definitely wouldn't be required at like a certain stage in life, as you guys have all pointed out, those journeys start at different points. Yeah, I think that in some ways, I think about this related to going through, for example, a really traumatic experience mm-hmm. that includes grief of some sort. You know, grief is something that our culture is not very well acquainted with, or we are, but we don't know what to do with it. <laughs> you can't force someone to grieve over something, mm-hmm. even if it is something that they went through in a very, you know, acute way, you can't force them to process it. You can't force them to ask questions, to seek counseling, to seek guidance, any of those things. It's going to come out at some point and there is maybe, you know, prudence and wisdom in dealing with it sooner rather than later, but you can't force that. I think that walking through understanding our ethnic identities is, is a very similar thing. I don't think that it's wisdom to force somebody to do that. I think that for me, as I was confronted with the question, it wasn't someone forcing me. It was somebody like bringing a question to mind, helping me to think about something differently. And then I took that so much farther than that conversation ever went. And in a lot of ways, it was, it really was genuinely wanting to understand how God made me and trying to steward something that I think he made with a lot of purpose and intentionality. And Around the same time, that same person, I remember him giving a talk on race and Christianity. And he said something about how, man, if you, now that you hear me say that culture and ethnicity is all over the Bible, you're never going to be able to not see it. And that was absolutely my experience too. And so I think it was very intricately related with my faith and my relationship with the Lord. And so those things were very intertwined. And I, I just felt like this is something I've got to steward well. And you, you, yeah, you just can't force somebody to walk through something and you can pray and you can, you can bet that in one way or another, they will eventually. And maybe prudence similarly to grief says it's worth us doing it earlier and not waiting but they're also I mean like Peter you shared this story that I'm sure is like filled with a lot of complexities and so like for somebody to force you even at a young age and you probably didn't fully grasp everything that was going on that wouldn't have been good like you you had to wait for that to be able to happen at at the proper time and so I think we also have to trust that God and his spirit his spirit is working in the lives of these other people too. When we're, when we're interacting with other Christians that we just wish they would engage with it. We've got to trust that God is moving in their life too. That's a word. She's preaching. Okay. So that is a beautiful segue into my next question, which actually Nicole, I'm going to throw back to you. And then Aiden, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this as well. How has God been a factor in processing your identity? If at all. 
Oh, he's been the factor. Oh. <laughs> I, I really, yeah, I don't know that I have a ton new to, to add to it. It's just, yeah, it's basically the things I've, I've said that like it, it was the process of realizing that this wasn't a mistake, that there is purpose, that God doesn't, his sovereignty and who he is, a God for all nations, seeing that written in scripture all the way through the Old Testament, not just in the New Testament. But, I mean, just all of this that we see, the more that I started to see this written all throughout the word, the more I just felt like I have to embrace my ethnic identity as a Christian. They are so, for me, they are so intricately connected. Aiden, um, I know when you and I have talked, you've mentioned um, how your understanding of the gospel has helped inform your view of your ethnicity. So can you just tell us more about how your faith has played out in that way? So like very similar with Nicole, the Lord is, has been the factor with uh, processing this identity uh, for me. And, and for, and I touched on it a little bit more, but or I touched on it a little bit earlier, but I'll expand more about it. But uh, a lot of my story with my with my identity is, has been, and processing it with the Lord has been a lot of just healing because a lot of the thoughts and a lot of the memories that I've had processing my multi-ethnicity has just come from a lot of um, hurt with uh, an immense amount of bullying when I was younger, as well as just people making me feel very different and that I was a wrong thing. Uh, and so my response to that after just a, enough enough time of uh, that trauma was to repress that part of my identity. And, and that's kind of where I was going with like how I didn't want to explore it because it's not that I didn't think to explore it. It's, it was almost that I didn't want to explore it. And that, that was kind of where the grief came from was my grandma, my mom's side, the one, the one from the Philippines, she passed away about two years ago around this time. And it was around then where I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't get to know her at all. Like, and part of it was because I never really wanted to explore any of that grieving and lamenting uh, with that part. But also just, you know, what's been eye-opening is how the gospel really does play into it. And how the Lord has allowed me to take the hurt and take the grief and the regret. And he is completely healed it on the cross and I thought it was so amazing to see that and even to to actually truly embrace and realize that this part of me this identity that I have as being multi-ethnic is is a gift and so I don't you know that's that's finally what's allowed me to embrace it it really has helped me to embrace it and celebrate it and it's been so cool and very eye-opening and you know I I don't I don't, I don't deal with the grief that I did, but, you know, there's still times where I'm like, you know, I do wish I got to have more conversations about the Philippines with my grandma. Luckily I have my grandpa I can talk with about that, but, you know, she, she had her own story and she was a wonderful lady. And, you know, luckily we get to celebrate her, her memory a lot. You know, that was, that was kind of the story of just how the Lord has allowed me just to process my identity because it was just a, there's a lot of healing that needed to occur. And what's beautiful um, coming from each of your perspectives is, Nicole, you were talking about how faith helped outline the intentionality with which you were made and the, the beauty with which you were made. And then, Aiden, you were pulling out how your faith helps you actually process the things that you're experiencing. So, yes, our faith informs this is what our identity is, but then our faith can also form the pathway to 
understanding our identity and for healing, for forgiveness, right? Because there's forgiveness for how people have treated us less than because of our minority side. It's forgiveness for needing to wrestle with, man, I've got majority culture in me and that in the past or currently is seems to be at odds. And so do, do I even hate part of myself? Um, so yeah, faith can really just be all encompassing in this story. Chandra, I wanted to ask you a question that you bring up in your book about the term identity in Christ. Um, so folks, especially in the church, can use the term identity in Christ that actually in a way that minimizes the difference in the body of Christ, um, typically with a comment such as, it's like, why do we need to put an emphasis on race? Like, we're all children of God. So can't we just talk about the gospel? Because that's our unifying factor. So how can we address that question? Yeah, there's so much there, right? There's so much loaded yeah. language there in the church, and there's just so much to it. Um, I think one of the key things there is that race is a social construct. Um, ethnicity is a biblical category. So race is based primarily on color, and it was uh, invented specifically in the United States to keep brown and black people in servitude, uh, categorized as subhuman, to keep white folk in the majority and in control and in power, and even to make sure that poor white folks did not collaborate and protest and advocate for justice with black and brown folks. Case system, caste system, basically. But it affects us, right? Because of that it's a social construct, but it still makes a huge difference in our lives. Some would argue maybe the most difference in the United States, especially. And colorism plays into that. And, you know, there's a history of colorism throughout the Bible throughout humanity, throughout recorded civilization of just valuing lighter skin more than dark skin. I think people forget all that when they talk about identity in Christ in this whitewashed way, in this way that is stripped of its nuance, that is stripped of its context, that then, yes, is weaponized to keep people from being difficult, right? <laughs> to, to keep things the way they are, and a lot of times it's done not intentionally, it's done not with anger or it's genuine confusion, right? And, and I want to acknowledge that. But part of growing as children of God, as those who bear the Imago Dei, uh, as those who uh, have our identity in Christ is remembering that Christ was brown, he was Middle Eastern, he was multi-ethnic. And I think when we reorient ourselves to that, then we can actually see what identity in Christ means. And I think in a lot a large way, that's something I appreciate about the theological perspective of what does it mean to be embodied? What does it mean to be not just souls that are mm -hmm. flitting around, but like in our skins, which comes in a different um, variety of, of colors, which will be that way for all eternity. Jesus is and was and is multi-ethnic, was and is brown, will be that way for all of eternity. And so encouragement to mono-ethnic majority culture folks, i.e. mostly white folks, let the minorities among you set what we're going to say is identity in Christ. Let them decide what that means in a given setting so that it is not upholding um, an oppressive structure. By way of encouragement to mono-ethnic minorities, it is okay to push back on this idea of identity in Christ as being a reason why we should all be quiet because Jesus wasn't meek and mild. He was meek in the way that he listened to the Lord. He was meek in the way that he came as a human being uh, in a frail but brown body. 
Mm-hmm. He was not meek and mild when he was preaching a very radical gospel. He was not meek and mild when he was turning over tables in the court of the Gentiles. And he wasn't meek and mild when he rose again. None of those things were status quo or keeping the people in power happy. And then encouragement to those of us who are multi-ethnic, we get to embody mm-hmm. that strange tension of what it means to be um, meek in the way that the gospels preach, meek in the way that um, Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I think by our existence, we push back on this whitewashed, white-centered identity in Christ. And that is both a privilege and also a burden. And so I encourage all of us who are in that mixed space to be kind to ourselves, to push back when we feel able, but also it's okay to pull back. And I think, again, that's part of the conversation we've had earlier throughout this podcast is what does it mean to push into different types of our identity for different seasons in different places, to code switch, to rest, to engage. And I think that's a huge, it's a huge encouragement to the church when we do that well, because then we can speak these prophetic words of, yes, we have our identity in Christ a hundred percent. That does not mean what we think it means. Our ethnicity matters because of our identity in Christ. Our ethnicity matters because Christ had an ethnicity and has an ethnicity for all time. And so when we do identity in Christ, that is both the starting point and also the launching pad for mm-hmm. asking questions of any sort of identity, gender identity, sexuality, issues of ethnicity, issues of profession. Identity in Christ is not the end of the conversation. It's the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to take that and just thinking when I'm looking at the Bible, um, one, when I'm looking at um, God's description of his kingdom come and all of his children worshiping him, the way that he defines his church is by every tribe, tongue, and nation. Like he could have chosen different adjectives to describe what his church looks like, but the distinction of um, the ethnicities that are coming in to play and are still existent at that time, all worshiping him in numbers that we can't even count, just suggests that that's so important to him. And then similarly, uh, Chandra, you were just hitting on this to other roles that we hold in our lives. Our faith does not negate those, but ideally helps us embody those roles and live them out even better. So for example, because I am a Christian, that does not then negate my role of being a woman or being a daughter. Ideally, I will be those things better understanding my faith more. And likewise, my faith would play, I'm sorry, my ethnicity would play out in a similar way because of my faith. I would embody that more. Yeah. So then maybe the flip side, um, I'm interested to hear from Peter and Nicole on this one. We do have an identity in Christ. Like that phrase isn't actually wrong, right? It's not wrong to use that. Um, And specifically, there's a quote from your book, Chandra, where you say, trusting in Jesus means citizenship in a kingdom that bases our ultimate value on belonging to Christ not our ethnic identity. And yet, and yet, this kingdom does not obliterate the beauty of our individual ethnic and cultural stories. The kingdom of God establishes our primary Christian identity without us losing the value of our ethnic identity, end quote. So um, I'll open the floor to Peter and Nicole, just talking about maybe the positive side of your identity in Christ. What does that mean to you playing out or how have you processed that in relation with your ethnicity? I think the thought that keeps coming, and I don't know if this is exactly an answer to your question, but I think there's a lot of freedom in our identity being in Christ. I mean, take ethnicity out of the picture, just the pressure of if, if our identity was bound up in our ability to perform towards perfection, Mm -hmm. we would never achieve it. 
we would, I mean, so like just clear and simple, our identity in Christ is part of what allows the God, like that is the gospel <laughs> that we were not able to maintain our relationship with God, that we had this covenant with him and we broke it and that he provided a way through Christ, his death and resurrection so that we might be able to take on his identity so that we might be able to have a relationship with God. And in identifying with Christ, we do identify with his death, but also with his resurrection, we get to identify with his ability to be the perfect version of all of these things. Like you were saying, Becca, the perfect version of our sexuality, the perfect version of our gender, the perfect version of our ethnicity, of our roles and relationships and responsibilities, because we have his righteousness as ours and because we bear his identity. What a freeing gift that is. And not a, not a cheap grace that says that I will then go on doing whatever I want. Paul's answer to that is by no means is that what I'm saying. By no means. But that 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 grace would compel us and that that freedom and gift of our identity in Christ would compel us towards our devotion for God and our relationship with him growing that much deeper. And so I mean like it's everything. <laughs> so then it within the context of our ethnicity as well. I, mean, I think the thing that comes to me is that the story of the gospel is one of a people. It is a story of a culture. It is a story of God making this promise to a family, always intending that this family would be a light for all nations and that all people would get to be grafted into that family. And so that's the reason why God speaks in Revelation of all tribes, tongues, and nations coming together because it's always been about a people and God wanting to live with his people and that he would be our God and we would be his people. And so part of our identity in Christ and, and letting that be the first thing means that we get to be a part of that people, but it is a people for all ethnicities, all cultures, all languages. Do you like how Nicole started that by saying, I don't really know if this is an answer to the question. And then she just goes and shares the gospel. Okay. I see you over there. Okay. Peter, do you have thoughts on this? Sir? Somebody, somebody touched on Moses uh, and his, and his story for like a, a, another, another question earlier, but for the longest time, you know, he, he, he never knew his, his, his real ethnicity until, until he did. And then long story short, short, he basically owned it. And that's kind of, at least for me, that's kind of the, the identity, what do you call it? Identity in Christ. It's not, it's not being what, what somebody else's definition or, or what their, what their, what their image of you is. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's what God's image of you is. Yes. I'm half white and half Latino, but I'm six foot five. I'm, I'm very tan by nature. I did not look Caucasian, but I am. I own that. Grew up listening to my dad's classic rock collection. I grew up going to a predominantly Caucasian church, which, which you know, are all good things. Like I, I own those things. Um, but at the same time, um, I also own the other part of me, the Latino part of me. So just all that to say, it's it's remembering what God's image of you was always meant to be and not what somebody else's image of us was meant to be. These are such a good words. Okay, great. Thinking about or going from our identity in Christ naturally flows into how does that play out in the church? And we got a couple questions from audience members that I think relate to each other. Um, and I'm just going to open up the floor for anyone to respond to these. Um, one of the questions is, what do you think the church can spiritually glean from understanding the nuances of a multi-ethnic perspective? 
And I think a similar question, so you can tackle either one, is uh, what are specific or tangible ways people in power, such as supervisors or church and community leaders, can help empower multi-ethnic mixed people to lend all of who they are to the communities that they're a part of, right? So it's kind of those questions are asking, what are those nuances to be aware of? And then how can you empower those nuances? So anyone with thoughts on that, please feel free. I feel really, yeah, I feel really strongly about this. And I love how you tied those two questions together, Becca, because I think they have to go hand in hand. The book that inspired me, Check All That Apply by Sandy Fraser, really delved into the identity of multi-ethnicity and it delved into the pain and the privilege of multi-ethnicity. When I started researching for Mixed Blessing book as kind of the next generation book for Mm -hmm. mixed people, because her book went out of print and she actually got to meet with her and she passed the mantle, which was so emotional and so beautiful. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. Something that I found out in my research is there is a unique role that multi-ethnic folks have to play in the church. Mm -hmm. So what what evolves out of those two things of the pain and privilege is what we have to teach. And I think what we have to teach among many things, but I'll mention one is what it's like to be in those liminal spaces, what it's like to be in the here and not yet. Mm -hmm. And I think also those in poverty, those in prison, those who are immigrants and refugees, I think they have that to teach well. But the problem is even when we're being seen and asked to provide message a message for the church and to provide resources for the church if we're not equipped first mm-hmm. if we're not given those spaces if we're not resourced if we're not cared for well then it just is one more thing that one doesn't go anywhere because the church isn't putting all of her effort and her power and her work behind it and two it just drains us right it's just one more thing that makes us tired so one very specific suggestion i would have is to acknowledge the multi-ethnic category, right? When, when organizations and even churches and different groups are trying to honor people of color, a lot of times they'll have spaces for Black folk, for Asian folk, for maybe even Native folk, if they're you know, really thinking outside of our, our box that we have in the United States. They will forget mixed folk time and time again, which means we have to choose, right? That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Is that, well, you know, I understand Peter's perspective being Panamanian because it's like, okay, there ain't no room for us Thai folk. <laughs> you know, it's, there's, there's not that. But if we look at those broader categories, there has to be a space for people who check all that apply, who choose more than one thing, or our voices are lost. They're not, they're not even acknowledged that those voices exist. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one specific thing that is such an encouragement and an important next step. Yeah, and I love how you just had the phrase, we're required to choose. Um, and that's that's where the issue may lie. Um, you had said something to me in a previous conversation um, because I had made the comment, my parents received the question before I was born or maybe while they were engaged, early marriage. They're like, if you have kids, they will be biracial. And so they will live um, a less complete life essentially because they won't belong in a certain area. Like where- But what about the children, Becca? What about the children? Exactly, right. And, and then you had said the fact that people make that comment outlines the expectation that they need to fit in, in one of the pre-existing categories already, and they have to choose. And the only way that they will get to experience life to the full is by choosing that. And so one of the nuances that I'm appreciating you pulling out is saying the, the requirement to choose. No, thank you. 
I just feel sad that that's the perspective of some people, not even sad. I mean, sure, I feel sad that your parents had to endure those sorts of comments. Absolutely. But just that like, no, I think that your life is so full and it's so beautiful because you have these different cultures. And I, I think that I am grateful and I see more of this growing in monoethnic cultures, but I, it just makes me sad that there are people who don't, don't recognize, no, there's a, there is a beauty in having all of these different things, which I know is something we talked about in the panel. It's something we're all really grateful for in having these multiple cultures, but it's, that just makes me sad that that's some perspectives. I did have another thought, of course I did, about your question, how can churches learn from multi-ethnic folks? Just to say, Nicole also works in a church, so she is right in the mix of it. Yes. Becca, you and I talked about this separately on a podcast for that church, but I think one of the things that I have seen in conversations with other people who are multi-ethnic is that the conversation can't just be about, this, this is my opinion, I, I don't think the conversation can just be about equity. And I think it has to be about also unity. And I think that multi-ethnic people have that built in because they are coming from experiences where these different cultures came together. And so I think that there is, there can be this isn't always the case, but I think that there can be more of a sensitivity to how are we communicating this so that we remember that another one of our ultimate goals is unity. Because that's a very different thing. If all we want is equity, I mean, that is going to produce and require something different than unity. And um, I think for the church, we have to be pursuing unity at, at the same time. Yes, absolutely. Corinthians, it talks about all of the gifts that we are given and how we are different parts of the body of Christ, right? And that isn't necessarily even just referring to ethnicity, how we're all different, but in our temperament, in our spiritual gifts, we are all demonstrating a different component of who Christ is and who he's made his body to be. And in that coming together is when it gets to be fully displayed. Yeah, that's great, Nicole. Um, Aiden, as a college student who you're in campus ministry, and you're also just looking at what it looks like to get involved with the local church, especially as you are establishing your own life. Um, what would you have to say toward this question about how a church can engage with multi-ethnic perspective or build the church and support the multi-ethnic perspective? I guess I have two thoughts about that. Tell us. <laughs> I guess the first one I just thought of is like, uh, I go to High Point, which happens to be the church that Nicole works at. One thing that they've talked multiple times about is like how they want to build up a multi-ethnic church uh, or I want, they, want to, they want the church to be multi-ethnic. And I think they do a good job of that. Uh, but I was just thinking about that. Like if the goal is the, of the, if their goal for the church is to be multi-ethnic, then like I think some of the nuances that they can find while keeping that church multi-ethnic or continuing it to make it multi-ethnic is potentially looking to multi-ethnic people. I mean, there's a lot of things that we know about keeping like that unity of being multi-ethnic and learning about the different, the multiple different worlds that we come from as well. And, and so I think it might be a way for leaders to learn from that as well. So I have an affirm Nicole of this, but I think it's a blessing that she's a leader who happens to be multi-ethnic in the church. You know, I think that's, that's amazing. And, you know, I know we're in good hands in, in that area. Another thing too, is I think just, you know, for building up the church and doing it chronologically through just building up the generations, then, you know, talk about, this from a young age talk about it with children uh, or younger people college students 
and even younger so that they don't have this shock of like what is what is, what am i learning here with multi-ethnicity especially if they're the majority culture you know i think for you know a lot of my frustration growing up is people just didn't know how to treat me and i think i i blame that mostly with just ignorance and i'm not upset about it but they didn't know you know like they didn't know that the me and i, I honestly at that point i didn't even know either but they didn't know like me being half filipino and half caucasian means that i'm biracial but they just saw it as oh he's half filipino he's asian you know and that's not wrong but i'm not just asian you know and so it just there's a lot of complications in it too so i think you know having some sort of vernacular of like he's multi-ethnic and like this is his story and it's beautiful and it's, but it's different than being you know just black or just uh white you know and so like i think having maybe a shift in language even in the church would be great and i think that would even build generations up that where this is it's not even something that people need to be uh that people like is, that isn't foreign to people so yeah yeah, absolutely. That's great. I'm hearing you say in language and then also maybe an expectation, there is going to be nuance. We need that nuance and to give the space and time to highlight those nuances, right? Like one of the things we struggle with is there is so much to me that it's going to take time to explain it to you. And I don't know if you actually have the time or the care to hear that. Mm. Um, and so to make that kind of space is great. Aiden, you Again, let us perfectly into my last question. I know that you have to get going to a class. So thank you so much for being with yeah, us. Yeah. Um, you've already even given your thoughts on this next question. So you're good to go. Um, but we're so thankful that you joined us for our last event and for this discussion today. So thank you. Of course. Yeah. Thank you, friends. I appreciate you all. See you later. The last question that I want to pull from what Aiden said is, is he was highlighting how there are mixed people in the church. And so we can help understand how to interact with mixed people as the church moves forward. Um, and that implies that we are willing to be the person that others come to, um, that we're willing to hold up that flag and say, hey, I'm a mixed person. I'm, I'm happy to help give voice to this race conversation. So uh, my question that I wrote down is because we are physically walking representations of holding different cultures together, mixed people can find themselves as bridge builders, either by their own expectations, thinking that they need to be the bridge builder or um, others' assumptions. Oh, you hold both of these intention. Great. You can tell me how the other side thinks, right? So how have you processed deciding if you even want to be that bridge builder? If we do truly have choice in how we live out our ethnicity, uh, one would assume that that means we get to choose if we hold that bridge for people to walk across or not. Um, so I will open that up for anyone who wants to address that first. How do you address if you want to be a bridge builder and how you've like set those boundaries? Uh, yeah, I think, I don't think you're always going to have the same answer. Mm. I think you'll go through different seasons of your life where you will feel one way and another. For me, I think it has become a personal conviction and one which I feel strongly that uh, is part of what it means to steward my multi-ethnicity. And like I shared before, that this feels like the continuation of the thread for me of understanding what it means to be a Christian and to be Mexican and to be American and to be white. And all of this wrapped up together feels to me like one thing, one more thing that I am to steward in my relationship with the Lord. And so because for me, it is something that I feel a conviction about which I am not saying is a requirement, 
because it is for me, there are times where it's really, really painful. There have been seasons where I have cried a lot of tears and talked a lot with um, my husband in particular about how hard it is to feel like I'm in this role. Some of it is just, you know, coming back with the imposter syndrome feelings, like feeling like that more, but just feeling it in what feels like higher stakes situations, just not feeling really fully understood in either camp. And so I think, yeah, if it is something that you choose to do, I think you've got to recognize that it, it is not going to be always easy. Mm-hmm. However, there are also times when it is beautiful and mm-hmm. it is a gift and it is a joy, like a true joy to be able to do this. I think there is a joy in getting to talk, for example, with like younger people who have never really ta- gotten to talk about it before with somebody. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, wait, you, I don't have to explain this to you. Like, you just get it. Oh my goodness. Like, wow. getting Getting to have those conversations is a true joy. Getting to talk with people and share with them the food from your background and where they're like, oh, this is awesome. And you start to see like their hearts soften and change a little bit. That is a true joy. Even in the moments where it's difficult, like in, in church settings, it is still, I see it as a, an honor and a privilege to be in this position, both ethnically and this position at my church where I get to speak into these things. And I, I hold that with such a high level of responsibility, knowing that it is, it is God's heart and his desire. And so I don't have to carry that burden, but that it is a privilege to also walk alongside what he is doing. And, um, to recognize that he has still given it to me to manage. If you're only in it for the really fun potlucks, then just get out now. (laughs) Ain't worth it. But if you are willing to, I love Galatians 6, 9. It says, do not grow weary in doing good for you know that at the proper time, you'll reap a harvest if you do not give up. If you're willing to have that mindset about being a bridge, you will experience blessings and joys along the way. In addition to the sorrow and grieving too, it'll be both. Other thoughts. I mean, being a bridge builder, just like the concept sounds like really cool. It's like, Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, it's not always, you know, going to be smiles and, and, and parties and, and laughter and good times. I've been hearing a lot about the spirit of offense as bridge builders. Uh, when it's not those peachy keen times, or, you know, let's say somebody says something insulting, whether it was intentional or not, right. you know, how, how do how do we respond to that? Are we going to, you know, oh, I recorded you putting you on social media and I'm going to put put you on blast. No, we can't. You know, I mean, we, I mean, we can we can let them know that, hey, that hurt, you know, you know, it. you know, for, <laughs> I'm going to nerd out a little bit here <laughs> for, for anybody who's seen the, the first the very first Spider-Man movie, you know, the, the, the <laughs> uncle says to, to Peter Parker, you know, with with great power comes great responsibility, you know. Yes. Um, I'll with you on that movie. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, the bridge building, that's part of it, you know, and so falling into that trap of the spirit of offense, it's 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 easy to do. I mean, I've, I've you know, I've caught myself in that trap you know, a few times. So, you know, nobody's immune to it or anything, but we just, we just have to be very, very aware of that and show the, the, the different, uh, whatever it is we're trying to connect the different uh, communities or demographics or whatever parts of our lives, the people in those parts of our lives that we're trying to connect or whatever, 
uh, we have to, we got to show them that. And I'm, I'm thinking that that um, then is applicable beyond conversations of race, right? Like we, everyone can highlight how we are in a very politically polarized time. I mean, we've always been, who am I kidding? History is not new, right? But we have our own context and um, how do we apply some of those concepts of this is going to be hard. I'm in it for the long run. Unity is the goal. I'm choosing not to be offended and apply that even in other areas as well. So that was a good word, Peter. Thank you. Chandra, I will let you round us out, especially since you wrote the book that really started us on this entire conversation. So no pressure, but your most profound words, now is the time. (laughs) Now is the time. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm so honored. Even I think this is one of the things that I, when we had our breakdown, uh, our little talk after we stopped recording for the Upper House event, uh, and all of us were so encouraged is I learned so much from all four of you. Um, and so it's an honor and I'm so grateful, right? Cause that's what we've been talking about this journey, learning more, not getting too comfortable, not thinking we have all the answers is a hugely important part of it. So I'm grateful for that building off what Nicole and Peter just said. I think it's so powerful. And, well, and what Aiden said before too, to have this language of being bridge builders One of the things I think that is so good about Latasha Morrison's ministry, Be the Bridge, it is asking majority culture people to be the bridge, to give of themselves in that way. But I think one slight problem in that, uh, just in the way that language has been appropriated and used, is asking minorities, um, people of color, to be the bridge. And I don't think that is healthy. I don't think that is what the Lord is asking of us. And like Nicole said, having that season, like Peter said, having that responsibility that is put on us by the Lord, it is not a responsibility to be Jesus. It is a responsibility to echo Jesus, to echo the creative God in bridge building, in creating bridges, in seeing bridges and divides and chasms really bridged over and eradicated in the body of Christ in the body of the multi-ethnic Christ. And so as we think about that as mixed people, we don't have to kill ourselves over it. And and we do not have to do damage to our bodies and our hearts and minds over it. Mm -hmm. We can take those seasons, take that time and see what the Lord is asking of us to be bridge builders. And I think uh, encouragement for monoethnic folks, whether majority or minority culture, respecting boundaries, that's biblical, it's healthy, it's important And so at the places when we say, I'm too tired, I can't do this right now with you because I'm in a season of grief, I'm in a season of trauma, I'm in a season of figuring it out, and I need safe spaces Mm -hmm. to process this so that I can go back into the work. Just respecting those boundaries and understanding that it's not personal, I think, is how more bridges get built. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.